Welcome and good morning. It's good to see you. And let me just start by uh, underlining what I said in the prayer email this week and just passing on a sincere thank you on behalf of the Smileys and the Hopes for the pastor's gift which you gave us at Easter. We are so thankful to God for your kindness and also for you as well. We do give him thanks for all of you. And then just also to mention that there is, we are planning to have an outdoor Sunday school uh, this morning. That wasn't looking too hopeful a couple of hours ago, but the weather's improved nicely. So uh, that will be uh, later in the service. And then as we did last week, we're hoping to close our service by singing together in the car park. And so at the appropriate point, I will invite you again to join me and leave through these doors with the musicians Uh, There are song sheets, which I'd ask you to pick up on your way out, maybe share one between a couple, and then after we've sung, the Sunday school will rejoin us while we're out there, and I'll dismiss you from the car park. Hopefully that's uh, clear. And then, as we did last week, we uh, recommenced our Sunday evening services in person. Those will be continuing now, so we're meeting again here at 6 p.m. to continue on in Mark's Gospel. And I hope that you can join us for that this evening. We're going to begin our time of worship with a Bible reading which reminds us 
who it is that deserves our worship and who it is that deserves our trust and our hope. So if you have a Bible, we're going to read Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people, Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Empty-handed eyes. 
Lord God, our good and gracious King, together we look up to you this morning and we pray not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Together we confess to you that we are so easily seduced to give our praise and worship to other things. Things that, however good they are, do not deserve our worship. And together we turn back to you now, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we worship you alone. And as we worship you, we ask you to meet with us. Teach us. Rebuke us. Correct us and train us in righteousness. Equip us for every good work. Continue your good work in us. Carry it on to completion. And we ask this for your glory, that you might be glorified through us. Amen. Trust the sweetest frame 
but holy trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the Darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy cave, my anchor holds within the this point our Sunday school are going to be uh, leaving through the doors that you came in through. Just follow Steve and Paula. The last time we looked at Deuteronomy a couple of weeks ago, we were introduced to the importance of God's decrees and laws. We said we could sum that up by talking about God's instructions. At the beginning of chapter 4, Moses said God's instructions are the way of life, the way of wisdom, and the way of relationship. And so then, the people who have God's instructions are the most privileged people on earth. God's instructions are not slavery, they're not an imposition on us, they're not some kind of awkward burden that doesn't fit us as human beings. No, they are the way to truly flourish as human beings in God's world. And this morning, Moses focuses in on what may well be the core of God's instruction, the command to avoid idolatry. We'll see next time this command is included in the Ten Commandments. 
In fact, it anchors everything else in the Ten Commandments. It's fair to say if we follow this primary instruction from God, the other things will fall into their proper place. So let's read this section beginning at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, reading down to verse 40. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? That any other people heard the voice, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds? like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. 
Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. This is God's word. And as we read it, it may have felt quite far removed from our situation because you probably don't have an idol statue in the corner of your living room and you're probably not tempted to go and get one. Although nowadays it's not so unusual as it might have been a few decades ago. I recently saw an interview with an Irish rugby player where he spoke about the Buddha statue in the corner of his living room, which he meditates in front of every morning. So if even Irish rugby players are into idol statues, then it's got to be reasonably common. But even making allowances for that, it's true that for most of us here this morning, little statues probably aren't much of an issue. So to see how this passage is relevant to us, we need to understand the real issue this passage is addressing. The issue is misplaced worship, or we might say misplaced devotion. To misplace something is to put it in the wrong place. It's not where it should be. And little statues are just one manifestation of misplaced devotion. The real issue here is the commitment of our heart. What is our heart devoted to? What is our heart value and treasure? Is our devotion given to the right place or the wrong place? Once we realize that is the issue, then we can see great relevance in all the stuff the Bible says about idolatry. So as we look again at this passage, every time it mentions idols, we can substitute in our minds the phrase misplaced devotion. And as he deals with this, Moses highlights two things. First, the problem with misplaced devotion, and then the cure for misplaced devotion. First in verses 15 to 31, the problem with misplaced devotion. In the verses just before our passage, Moses had reminded the Israelites what happened at Mount Sinai, also known as Horeb. And that's where God brought the Israelites after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And they had a powerful experience at that place. But we saw last time, the significant part of that experience was not the pyrotechnics on the mountain, the fire and the earthquake. The significant thing about the experience was that God spoke. He brought his word to the people. And here in verse 15, Moses underlines that. The Lord spoke to you at Horeb. What he did not do was give you an idol to worship. And the reason for that is an idol or an image represents something from God's creation, some part of his creation. It has to, whether it's an image of a person, a fat and happy Buddha, for example, or whether it's an animal, a golden calf, for example. Whatever it's an image of, it has to be something in God's creation. So to worship an idol is to take something that take the worship that belongs to the creator and direct it instead to something he has made. God himself is above and beyond creation. So to worship something in creation is to live a life of misplaced devotion. And Moses says, God had good reason for not giving you an image at Horeb. So be careful now that you don't go and make any for yourselves. And it's interesting that in verse 16, the first example Moses gives is making an idol of a man or a woman. The opening chapters of the Bible are key to understanding most of what goes on in the rest of the Bible. And Genesis chapter 2 makes it clear our calling as human beings is to serve God side by side with one another. We are not to treat one another as gods or put one another in God's place. 
But isn't that one of our greatest tendencies? To idolize other people. Whether it's a sports personality we've never met or some other celebrity we adore from a distance or whether it's someone actually in our lives who we adore to the extent we believe we couldn't live without them. And maybe if we lose that person, our inability to go on with life shows that we did idolize them. Now the Bible puts great value on human relationships. God did not intend Adam to be alone, Genesis says. He doesn't intend you and me to be alone. Whether we're married or single, we are made for relationships. But when God made us that way, he did not intend that we'd put another person in his place so that our world revolves around that other person and falls apart if we lose that person. So husbands and wives, the message here is not don't love your spouse, it's love your spouse in the right way. Not as if they're God to you, No, love them as a fellow servant of God who you have the privilege of serving God side by side with. The opening chapters of Genesis also help us understand what Moses says here in verses 17 to 19. In those verses, he mentions the other living things in creation. And they also mention the sun, moon, and stars. Genesis tells us not only were human beings created to serve God side by side, they were created to serve God by ruling his world well, being good stewards of all the rest of his creation. God did not intend that we take any part of his creation and put it in his place as if it were God. In the ancient world, that happened all the time. As people made images of animals and bowed down to them and they looked up at the sun and stars and bowed down to them. In our day, this happens when we turn environmentalism into a religion. When we do that, we pervert our God-given mission to take care of creation into a God-defying worship of creation. We thought about this recently in Second Peter. And if you listen carefully to scientists who claim to be atheists, they actually don't stop talking in worshipful terms. They just transfer language of adoration and awe from God himself onto the things God has made. Richard Dawkins, for example, will often speak about the glories and the wonders and the majesty of nature. That's taking devotion that belongs to God and focusing it onto what God made. And it proves the point that as human beings, we cannot help worshiping. We will be devoted to something. So the question is not will we worship? The question is, what will we worship? And the list of possibilities is just about endless. We can be devoted to ourselves, consumed with our sense of self-worth, with our identity, our sexual fulfillment. We can be devoted to getting affirmation and praise from other people and trying to feed on that. We can be devoted to health, trying to make sure we have a pain-free life. For some people, their own fertility becomes the focus of everything. Being able to have children is what they devote themselves to. All of our modern idols had their ancient equivalents. Culture changes over time, technology changes, but our human tendency to idolize has not changed a bit. 
And the message of the Bible is that devotion to anyone or anything other than God is misplaced devotion. We're to use all God's creation well. We're to enjoy it as a good gift. We are not to put any part of it in God's place. And this is just as applicable to God's people as to anyone else. In verse 20, Moses says to the Israelites, God delivered you from Egypt and its false gods. And he didn't do that so you could go on to make your own false gods. In verse 20, Egypt is referred to as the iron smelting furnace. That's certainly a reference to how miserable life was there for the Israelites. But I wonder if it's also saying one of the things that made Egypt so miserable was the place was an idol factory. They were forever fashioning new gods in their smelting furnaces. Forever finding new ways to take something in creation and worship it in place of the creator. But Moses says, God delivered you from that so that you could direct your devotion where it truly belongs to God himself. Don't waste that deliverance by making your own idols. That's utterly foolish. And here's why it's foolish. The problem with misplaced devotion is that it's the way of loss. Of course, nobody worships another human being because they want to lose. Nobody gives their devotion to something because they want to suffer or go through pain. We give devotion to someone or something because we believe they're worthy of it. Because we think devotion to that person or that thing will be for the best. But the Bible assures us no one and nothing other than God is worthy of our devotion. Devotion to anything other than God always leads to loss. It is never for the best. And because God loves his people, he will do what it takes to show us that even when it hurts. That's the point of verses 23 and 24, where Moses says, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When we looked last time at the earlier part of this chapter, we said a covenant is a committed relationship. The Bible uses human marriage to illustrate the kind of committed relationship God has with his people. And like any good spouse, God is so committed to the relationship that he will not sit back and let another lover elbow their way into his relationship with his people. If a human spouse took such a careless attitude to their marriage, if they just stood back while somebody else seduced their husband or wife, we'd say the relationship meant nothing to that careless spouse. How could it mean anything to them if they did nothing to save the relationship? And that helps us see what the Bible means when it talks about God's jealousy. God is passionate. He tells us that himself. He describes himself as fiery, not as icy. He is a God of warmth and ardor. He is not a God of frigid apathy. And in his passion for his people, he will not ignore it when they misplace their devotion. Not only is that a betrayal of his love, it's also disastrous for them. There's no future in worshiping things that aren't God as if they are God. And so in his love and commitment to his people, 
God will show them the folly of their idolatry. That is what's described in verses 25 to 28. In those verses, God says, if in the future his people give their devotion to idols, he will give them up to those idols. He says they will be driven out of the land he's given them. They will be scattered among the peoples. And look at verse 28. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. In other words, Israel, if you set your hope on false gods, if you worship created things rather than the Creator, I will let you experience what those false gods can do for you. I will let you have your fill of what they can give you. I will let you experience the truth that those things you are devoted to can ultimately give you nothing. I will let you prove the folly of putting your hope in those things. And this is so important for me and you to grasp. How God may choose to deal with us in our idolatry. When we give our devotion to people or things that are not God, God may allow us to experience the impotence of our idols. So if I worship my health and then I lose my health, God in his great love may be showing me the folly of worshiping my health so that I learn to worship him instead. If I worship career success and then lose my career, again, in his love, God may be showing me the folly of worshiping my career so that I learn to worship him instead. Each of us can fill in the blank here with whatever or whoever it is you tend to put in God's place. We can fill in that blank and then all of us can ask ourselves, isn't it better to have the emptiness of our idols exposed now than to go on worshipping them all the way to eternal destruction? Isn't it better to experience the failure of our idols now than to go on being deluded thinking they're worthy of our worship? The fact is nothing other than God is worthy of our worship. And it's proof of God's love and commitment to us when he shows us that. And he will often do it by letting us experience the failure of our idol so that we turn to God himself. The only one who truly can be God to us. Here in our passage, God tells Israel that in advance, if you give yourself to idols, this is how I will break the hold those idols have on you. I will let those idols fail you. I will let you experience the loss that comes from devoting yourself to them. And look carefully at God's ultimate purpose in this, in verse 29. But if from there, in other words, from the places where you are scattered, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Notice again how the key to all this is the covenant. That committed relationship God has with Israel. Back in verses 23 and 24, it was that commitment 
which caused God's fiery jealousy to be provoked when Israel went after idols. And now it is that same burning commitment to his people that moves the Lord to mercy when they turn back to him. There is hope for idolaters like Israel and for idolaters like us. Verse 29 says we can come to find the truly worthy one, the one who can truly be God to us. But notice we will not find him, we will not experience him as our all-sufficient one until we seek him with all our heart and with all our soul. Which is another way of saying until we give to him the devotion we've been misplacing in those other things. As I said earlier, this does not mean we stop loving other people and other things. It means we begin to love them in the right way. We no longer love them as things we put in God's place and look to for our fulfillment. Instead, we begin to learn to love them as gifts from God. Gifts that prompt us to praise Him and be more devoted to Him as the giver of the gifts instead of being devoted to the gifts themselves. On Good Friday, we saw the contrast between two very rich men in the New Testament. As we listened to Judah's story on Good Friday, we heard about the rich man who went away sad from Jesus. The reason he went away sad was he chose to stay devoted to his money rather than give Jesus his devotion. And in contrast to that man, we also heard about Zacchaeus, a man who was so delighted to meet Jesus and have Jesus as his Lord that he began a whole new relationship with his money. Zacchaeus' wealth found its proper place in his life, no longer as his God, but now as a God-given resource for blessing others. So if you want to think more about the contrast between treating money as God and treating it as a gift from God, read the stories of those two men. In fact, Luke sets them side by side in his gospel, one towards the end of Luke 18 and the other at the start of Luke 19. You can read about those two men and then apply it to your own situation. The difference between grasping onto a created thing for dear life, like your life truly depends on it, versus grasping hold of Jesus for dear life. And then seeing created things as gifts to use for him. But how do we do this? Because I'm sure as we sit here listening, we probably all agree that only God is worthy of our devotion. We probably all agree that devotion to other things will ultimately lead to disappointment and loss. But how do we begin to shift our devotion from where it is to where it needs to be? Well, that's what the rest of the passage is here to help us with. Verses 32 to 40 give us the cure for misplaced devotion. Weigh up the saving love of the Lord. We all have a tendency to idolatry and we might all agree it's the road to nowhere. But just telling ourselves to stop it probably won't get us very far. Moses knows that. So he says to the Israelites in verse 32, Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? 
Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? We idolize things because we believe they will do us good. We believe they will save us somehow. Save us from loneliness. Save us from irrelevance or pain or poverty, whatever. And so Moses says to Israel, take time to weigh up the Lord's salvation. Has there ever, since the beginning of time, been anything like it? And what he's talking about is the exodus from Egypt. When God brought his divine power and authority to bear in order to save that miserable, enslaved people. To bring them out of the clutches of Pharaoh, their slave master. God brought the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's army in that same sea. What other savior can save like that? What other God can match that? Yes, the other gods were false, but even in people's imagination, those gods would never even attempt such a rescue as that. Those who worshipped other gods might hope for rain every year. They might hope for a good harvest, but that's about as far as it went. But the Lord, the God of Israel, did an utterly unprecedented thing, saving his people from misery. And Moses says, the Lord did this not on a whim, not just to flex his muscles, he did it out of love. Look at verse 35. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. Twice before our passage has mentioned the Lord's covenant with his people. And now the heart of that covenant is spelt out. What the Lord did was not simply out of obligation. It wasn't just honoring a commitment that he may or may not have regretted making. Not at all. His work of salvation was a work of love. And so Moses says, take the time to weigh that up. Think of the other saviors you're tempted to look to and put your hope in. Is there any savior like this? Is there anything or anyone in all creation worthy of your devotion compared to this? And when you put those things or those people in God's place, do they love you? with the kind of fiercely committed love that God has for you? Can they deliver what God delivers? The answer is obvious. Verse 39, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. Verse 40 shows God's uniqueness is not just something to nod our heads to. Taking it to heart means acting on it. Making him the focus of of our devotion and our obedience. 
We saw earlier in the chapter, obedience to his instruction is the way of relationship. And that relationship brings lasting blessing. If you and I are going to cure our misplaced devotion, the way forward is to stop regularly and weigh up the saving love of the Lord. If that was true for Israel, who could look back to the exodus from Egypt, how much more is it true for you and me? You and me who can look back to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the Lord did for a nation of slaves in Egypt was the prototype of what he did through Jesus for a world of sinners. In fact, the New Testament makes that connection. Here in our passage, if you look back up to verse 34, Moses spoke about God showing himself at the Exodus through signs and wonders and by great and awesome deeds. And in the New Testament, when Peter speaks about Jesus, he says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him. The point is that in Jesus, the God of the Exodus came again to show his saving love again. And the work of Jesus was even more wonderful than the Exodus from Egypt. Jesus accomplished eternal salvation for his people. And he did it, yes, by rising from the dead, but first by going willingly to death. At the Exodus, God freed his people by crushing their enemies. At the cross, he freed his people by being crushed himself. So today, you and I can ask Moses' question again. From the day God created human beings on earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Not just that one man would die for another, but that the most powerful one, the creator would die for the weak, the disobedient, the lost. As you and I face the problem of our misplaced devotion, as we struggle daily to turn from our idols, the cure will always be to pause and to weigh up again the saving love of the Lord. To ask ourselves, does any other object of devotion have the power to save you? Has any other savior gone to such lengths for you? Taking the weight of your punishment so you could go eternally free. Have any of your idols shown you love of this magnitude? Such deep and persevering love. Only the Lord is worthy of our worship and devotion. Let's pray. The Lord is God. In heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Father, I pray that you will help us take this to heart until we truly do seek you with all our heart and soul. Until we truly do worship you alone. By your Holy Spirit, will you give us the wisdom and the clear-sightedness to pray sincerely the dearest idol I have known.
however much adored, help me to tear it from your throne and worship you as Lord. Father, we thank you for your powerful, saving love. Help us respond to that love by giving ourselves to you. Not just partly, not just temporarily, but always and completely. Amen. We're going to respond now to God's word with words of our own in song. So I invite you to join me and the musicians through these doors. We'll head round towards the back where there's plenty of room and you can pick up a song sheet on your way out.
be 